0: Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person who uh, wants a livable future. I mean, right, a livable future. And so today we're going to be talking about um, a big announcement from the White House that in September, there's going to be a White House conference on hunger, health and nutrition. Integrating the food system with health and nutrition? Um, so this is the first big conference um, in, in over 50 years. And to talk about this uh, plan, along with how do we create a livable future, is Ann Palmer, and she's the director of practice and a f- faculty member with the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Hi, welcome to Food Freedom Radio.
1: Thank you. Thank it's great you. great to be here. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about yourself. So I work um, at the Center for Livable Future, and I've been here about 16 years, and uh, my work has focused on mostly the consumption um, side of the equation. And I started out doing a lot of work with community food assessments, um, talking to people about urban agriculture, different food policies, worked very closely with the city of Baltimore on getting their food policy work established, and now um, have been part of an initiative, national initiative called Food Policy Networks, which works with food policy councils around the country. Um, but, yeah, really interested in food, nutrition, and how it all links together.
0: And sometimes when you say things like that, it can sound real sorepo, but when I was looking at your your, um, website, um, I didn't realize that Meatless Mondays, which we're all very familiar with now, kind of grew out or was partnering in some of this policy work.
1: Yeah, when I first started, actually, um, that was one of my projects that I worked on really closely. We're still uh, the scientific advisors to the campaign. Um, And the goal is to really get people to, consider reducing meat consumption um, one day a week through uh, all kinds of uh, campaign initiatives and, you know, different devices that we use for the campaign.
0: Awesome. So now let's talk about this announcement, uh, recent announcement about this White House conference. Um, What do you guys know about it?
1: So pretty much just what you all have read and what's been available online is that they have made um, a decision to hold a conference It's the first one they've had since 1969, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. How long some of these problems have been going on, Uh, and we know that they are going to be doing, uh, having community listening sessions and trying to get a lot of input. They want to have uh, community members, representatives from food manufacturers, um, state and local governments, nonprofits, a whole range of people involved in the conference, it looks like.
0: And um yeah so there, there's four of things one is they there's even a submission portal for ideas. so if people want to they can um, send their own ideas um, for this conference.
1: Yes, it's not open yet I don't think um but it is that is the idea is to get uh, get people's input.
0: So they're addressing five major issues, ending hunger, improving nutrition, improving improving physical activity, reducing diet-related diseases, and closing disparities um, gaps by 2030. So let's kind of slow down and talk about um, hunger. Um, hunger in the United States, what's the – I mean, um, it is a problem here in a a land of plenty. We have um, hunger, and so we have – I mean, it's it's just – on the one hand, we're producing all this food. We're wasting a lot of food, but we have hungry people.
1: So hunger has been a systemic problem for many, many years. And I think one of the – when you look back at, you know, when they held the first conference and even just thinking about what's happened since then, uh, especially with the COVID-19 pandemic – Um, that hunger continues to plague us. And we know that for a lot of communities during the pandemic, um, it was especially acute that we saw communities who maybe had been food food secure all of a sudden overnight or in a very short period of time becoming food insecure because of lost jobs, Um, at some point losing housing became an issue. Um, So I think hunger, uh, you know, if you talk about hunger, you can't not talk about poverty and sort of the causes of hunger. And poverty has plagued us and continues to plague us. And certainly we know that there's a a link to people being able to purchase food um, and affordable food and have access to it when you think about what's happening with food prices these days. um, I've seen, you know, up to 25% increase in some foods. And, you know, how does that, what happens to families who are already struggling to feed themselves um when we have those types of increases and so we know they start to rely more and more on emergency food systems um to feed themselves and have less opportunities and less um you know less healthy foods are available to them as a result of that
0: yeah and uh i mean with the food prices going up it can feel um very daunting and um i mean i i can uh i mean what's coming to my mind right now is i know a mother whose kids just love fruits and vegetables and it's like i can't afford to buy you fruits and vegetables Here, have some chips. Yeah,
1: Yeah. and I think that's one of the problems that we've faced, and it just gets exacerbated when you have um, an increase in prices. Is that you know, foods that tend to be more highly processed um, are the prices don't fluctuate that much. But when you're talking about fresh fruits and vegetables, whole grains, um, and other you know, fresh food products, it's they are more vulnerable to price shocks, and so I think it becomes more and more challenging, especially with produce.
0: And to get even more scary, scared, um, not only is inflation hitting, but climate change is is um, is really um, causing more and more problems. Like um, I, I actually traveled through Wisconsin, traveled through um, California uh, recently, and uh, California is in the midst of uh, drought, and a lot of our fruits and vegetables come from California.
1: Yeah, and I think that we're going to continue to see those types of issues. Um, you know, as climate change gets worse, uh, I don't. You know, in some ways, I mean, this conference is great. I mean, there isn't a, a direct link right now to the, in, you know, to climate change in the conference. But I think um, you can talk to almost any community around the country now, and that they certainly see the need for planning to uh, for any kind of disruption in the food system. Um, if the last two years didn't teach us anything, it certainly taught us that we cannot um, just rely on everybody else to be feeding us, that we have got to start to think about what is it going to look like um, to have uh, more produce, more foods grown in our area, in our regions, to have that readily available, uh, not to be so reliant on um Outside sources. I mean, we certainly aren't going to go away from a global food system, but I think there's a lot of wisdom in trying to rebuild local and regional uh, food systems and producers, supporting those producers because that does give us some level of resilience against some of these shocks. Now, would it have done it in COVID nineteen? I don't know, but I think Mm -hmm. um, that there is a need. A lot of communities are trying to figure out how do they plan for the next emergency, um, be it uh, a pandemic or climate change.
0: And so that's also the work of the food policy networks
1: to try yes. to build
0: up that local food shed.
1: Yes. It has, um, like I said, we work with food policy councils around the country, and a lot of those councils in the last couple years really were kind of put in the in the spotlight um, and asked to play a role in the emergency food provision and and in helping prov- um, producers actually you know figure out where to send their products once they lost their regular supply chains um they were helping communities that all of a sudden didn't have access to food or to school lunches and to all these other um, normal supply chains that were open to them those were you know they had to look elsewhere and a lot of the policies that were in place like congregate eating policies we couldn't follow those during the pandemic so a lot of the food policy councils worked on those immediate issues, and I think what they realized in working on those immediate issues that these a lot of these issues are linked and that they need to be involved in this longer-term planning. Um, I think the other thing we saw with the killing of George Floyd was that how much racism plays in, in this larger picture of systemic um, disparities and, and, you know, what can we do with regards to that? And so we saw a lot of food policy councils that had not previously probably been engaged directly in using that type of a framework around social justice or racial justice, um, trying to employ that and, and really starting to ask themselves how they could help eliminate disparities in their communities and start to address those more directly.
0: And that's linking and finding the um, – co. co- find, I mean, all these issues are definitely linked. And like uh, one thing I learned on your website is roughly three-quarters of U.S. farm workers are immigrants and about half of those are undocumented. So, I mean, there's so many justice issues in our food system right now. Um, and, and so um, unraveling that, um, I don't know, even know how to how – do, how do you begin to unravel all of the injustice in our food system?
1: You know, <laughs> it's a great question. I don't know that I have the answer, but mm-hmm. I do think, you know, we start with conversations and building relationships across these different sectors. Um, and I think um, building people's understanding of what's happening helps to develop some empathy and, and understanding for how do we need to move forward to make progress. I mean, I don't think, sometimes I think, yes, there are, you know, very distinct values that are driving political agendas. Um, And I also think that there's an opportunity for us to come together and start to look at where we do have some common ground and and how do those common goals then lead us, you know, to a path that we can possibly take together instead of, you know, always looking for what's going to, you know, what will divide us. And, you know, I think food workers are another great example of what we saw during the pandemic, too, is that, you know, they were really vulnerable and not having, you know, as food workers – and packing plants were getting COVID and those packing plants were shutting down and farmers didn't have places and their animals that, you know, for slaughter, that was a problem. Um, and it just, it was rippling throughout the food system. And I think, you know, those, those workers are not organized, you know, certainly from like a union's perspective and they often have low wages and few benefits if any. And so, you know, how do you make their employment less vulnerable? And then by securing that, And giving them more protections and giving them, you know, better working conditions, you inevitably are going to improve their food security as well because they're going to have higher wages and they're going to be able to feed their families and they'll be able to, um, you know, be more protected like most workers are in the U.S.
0: We all do better when we all do better. That's a quote from Paul, yeah. Senator Paul Wellstone here. We're going to take a break. Um, but we're talking right now with Ann Palmer, and she is the director of practice and a f- faculty member with John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She's also with the Center for Livable Future and the Food Policy Networks. And we're talking about an upcoming White House conference on hunger, health, and nutrition. That conference is going to be held in September. Um, so let's, let's connect the dots. Let's connect the dots between nutrition and justice and health. And a livable future for everyone. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota.
1: But now you want to say that we are Welcome back
0: to uh, Food Freedom Radio, and uh, we're talking with Ann Palmer, and she's with the uh, John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, the Center for a Livable Future, and the Food Policy Networks. We're talking about an upcoming, um, in September of this year, in the fall, um, the White House will host a uh, White House conference on hunger, health, and nutrition. Uh, this is the first conference in more than 50 years, um, and so it's it, it, what should be our country's food policy agenda for the next 50 years. So, Ann, what do you think our country's policy should be for the next 50 years?
1: <laughs> oh, have, there are so many possibilities out there, Laura. <laughs> so, I know. I'm asking
0: a lot of simple questions.
1: Yeah, you know, very simple. Um, I, I go for the next 10 years, how about or even five years. But I you think, know, um, this fall. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or this
0: winter, yeah.
1: Yeah, this fall. Here we go. Um, so I think, you know, when we look at what our current policies are, you know, it is very interesting. The U.S. does not have a national policy on food, right? I mean, we have—it's—we have a lot of different government departments that work on food and contribute to, you know, um, food policy and have influence over it, but we really don't have a coordinated effort. So I feel like, at the federal level, it would be great to see great, more coordination and collaboration among different government agencies. Um, you know, maybe there's a position or some sort of, you know, leadership role. Uh, at the executive level that would help to coordinate that. I know when we work with um, cities that are doing that, they have someone in city government who's working with all the different agencies in city government that are related to food. And most agencies have some authority over food, be it food that's being sold in a vending machine at a rec center or um, you know, school food, et cetera. So, there's all, there's a, really a need for coordination, not only at the local and state levels, but also at the federal level. So, it'd be great to see that um, taken up as, you know, as a mantle. Um, when we look at federal nutrition programs, I think there's a lot of opportunities that uh, we can explore. Um, SNAP benefits are a big one. I think one of the things we've learned over the last I think it's been about eight or nine years. Is that incentivizing the purchases of healthier foods does make a difference, and it really it helps improve diet quality, um, and that's exactly what we're looking for. Is so, how do we incentivize that um, even in a, in a larger scale? So, it's now under the GUSTNET program. The federal government, before that was called a Food and Security Nutrition Incentives, you know, has dedicated you know millions and millions of dollars towards this effort, and I think. Um, It's always more popular with people and with politicians, I think, to incentivize rather than to punish, you know, uh, like taxing food. So I think this this program, the incentivizing, should continue. And um, they've incorporated – so it's like you're in double bucks programs and things like that. They've incorporated that to go beyond farmer's markets, and now there are supermarket chains that have been taking that up. Um, And I think that expansion really – could continue.
0: So I was I was familiar with the um, uh, the extra bucks for farmers markets but I guess I didn't realize that, that it also expanded. So how does how does that work?
1: So they have supermarkets um, some some are lo- locally or regionally owned but there are I think there's some Kroger's and some Safeways that have also been participating in this. So when you use your SNAP dollars if you're purchasing fruits and vegetables then you will get I, I don't some it's different each um, each project, I should say, has a different sort of incentive uh, framework that they're using. But sometimes it's double bucks, and so they'll actually double the value of their SNAP dollars if they're buying produce. Um, Other times it might be up to a certain amount of purchases. So if you are purchasing $25, you're going to get a $20 incentive on top of that. So... um, but it really, it does depend on, the, you know, how those projects have to structure them.
0: Yeah. And I realize these are really super complex issues, and we're not going to change overnight, but we've often said on this show that it's, I mean, we, as a nation, we're spending so much more money on health care dollars, <laughs> and yet we're subsidizing corn syrup, you know? And and yeah. so, I mean, it's like, and and, and stuff that um, hurts our water and our soil, and So um, one of so this conference on um, White House conference on health um, on hunger, health and nutrition is going to be looking at ending hunger and improving nutrition. So a way to just all get together and say how do we improve the nutritional levels of our food system and looking for ideas.
1: So it really is going to take a lot of different um, sectors to get involved because we're getting food in so many different places. I mean, it, that right there is just complicated. And one of the reasons why we've ended up with such high rates of obesity and diet-related disease, I think, is that food is available everywhere at any time. We have um, retail operations that sell food, you know, that don't aren't even food purveyors, purveyors, you know, per se. So you're just, and then the portion sizes have increased and people are eating out more and we've got a lot more processed food. So you look at that sort of, you know, just a range of issues that we're dealing with. Then you're looking at, you know, um, the, like I said, federal nutrition programs before, what happens in food retail? Like our, you know, definitely at this point, you know, most food retailers are putting the most profitable foods at eye level. Um, and they're, you know, marketing uh, those foods in such a way that is going to encourage people to buy them. So it's, those are not the healthier foods, right? We know that that's not where people are going to be making money. So how do we start, start to counter some of that? So I think, you know, food marketing is another big area, food retail, um, school and, you know, child care settings are another area we need to work on. Um, health care, uh, work sites even can get involved. I mean, I think there's, a, you know, all of those different sectors have something at stake and have influence and in the ability to make changes in their policies that can help people make better choices and start to remove some of what we call kind of these system-wide problems.
0: And I'm just going to, because this pop popping my brain, but um, improving nutrition and uh, on a budget, um, legumes and grains, you know, buy them from bulk at the co-op and learn how to cook with those, those um, beans and rices can really do both. They can save dollars and improve nutrition.
1: It can. And I think we also have to be really careful that, um, you know, a lot of people who are low income do not necessarily have a ton of expendable time to be cooking from scratch, and so I think there's a part, I, I agree that that is a strategy and that works for some and it is not going to work for everybody because we have a lot of working parents that are relying on public transportation and have all kinds of other stressors in their lives and sitting down and cooking a meal is not going to be the easiest thing for them to do.
0: I definitely hear you there. That's so true. Because one of the other priorities is closing this disparity, disparity gap. So talk about what the problems are in the food system as far as um, unequal access and availability.
1: So, you know, just by where you live, right there, there's a disparity, right? I mean, we know that um, lower income communities oftentimes don't have easy access to um, supermarkets or fresh fruits and vegetables, period, even if they were in the smaller markets. I mean, those days are kind of over where they were more specialty markets. And so they do tra- tend to travel, like all of us do, to buy their groceries outside of their neighborhood. Um, but there's an additional burden because they're paying for transportation um, in a budget that's already limited. So I think if you look just at, you know, what happens in their direct environment, that could be an issue. Um, you know, I think one of the things that we've been paying attention to and watching more closely, um, like cost of housing. Housing is going up. Oh, so That's a huge problem. Wow, It's a huge big. problem.
0: Big issue. Right, and oh,
1: it's crazy. Big issue, and um, for a lot of you know communities, if they don't, you know, as soon as you become unhoused, you become much more vulnerable and become much higher, you know, in terms of food insecurity. Your rates are going to be much higher. So, you know, before, tackling affordable housing could be a huge win for. Some kind of a policy around this. Having, some, uh,
0: having affordable housing yeah. near uh, farms, maybe. I don't. We're going to take, yeah. take a break. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Headline, and with us is Ann Palmer. Uh, she's with the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. We're talking about a livable future. What's wrong? Welcome back to Food Friend Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and uh, we're talking about a um, livable future. And with us is Ann Palmer. She's the director of practice and a faculty member with the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Um, and we're talking about uh, Biden's um, announcement, recent announcement, that the White House is holding a conference on hunger, health, and nutrition. This is the first time in 50 years that, since a, that a conference um, like this has been held. And one of the, other, um, one of the uh, five um, goals of this conference is to reduce diet-related diseases. So, Ann, can you tell us a little bit about what that might mean or what that might entail?
1: So if we look at um, what diseases are diet-related, we know that um, OBC probably would be the number one that we rethink about. Diabetes is another one, heart disease, hypertension. Um, all of them are linked to what our current diet really is um, is full of, which would be sodium, sugar, trans fats, you know, uh, foods that are making us sick rather than healthy.
0: Sugar, salt, fat.
1: Yep, Exactly.
0: And part of that is that we and, and, uh, that we have a system that um it, it sort of functions on just how it makes money rather than how to keep people living well <laughs> and part of the transition that we need to go is to really connect um life and and uh and how we how we um uh how we eat and how we uh function in this world i don't know if I quite said that right, but
1: yeah, I think there is you know when you think about um When you talk to supermarket owners and you say, you know, what's what's preventing people from buying healthier foods when they come to the supermarket, and you know, for them, they think of it as sort of a lack of demand, right? So if they are promoting these foods, um, they want to see that they're going to sell them, and so there is this kind of overarching, you know, how do we get people to change their purchasing patterns? And I think that is another kind of multifaceted problem, you know, issue to deal with. Like, how do you do that? So you do it through. Um, you know, maybe there's marketing, uh, the reducing marketing to children. Uh, food marketing in the United States is not regulated to children, and in a lot of countries it is. But at least they have some restrictions, if not outright bans, for kids under the age of 12. So that would be a big help. But I think even kind of beyond that, in terms of, like, what do you look at, um, you know, what do we know about how people make decisions about their purchasing? And it is a lot of convenience foods um, and things that are um, – Relatively easy. They know people are going to eat. Their, their family members will eat. Uh, I had a colleague who used to say are, at some point for low-income families, a lot of them are purchasing to reduce hunger and stop hunger, not to not for health goals. And so until you are making a certain amount of money, you aren't necessarily going to have that expendable income to purchase foods that are healthier.
0: Right. And, um, but I, I go back to this mother. I know that her daughter loved grapes, you know, like the grapes are too expensive. And permaculture, we could be having fruit and, and cities can be planting fruit trees all over the place. And so this whole role of, um, community gardens and food forest. Um, in our in our urban area so that and and you know we've had some beautiful stories here like project sweetie pie that's been working on community gardens and open door um in um that uh, that, that that connects these um actually growing spaces with food um do you see that trend yeah. nationwide
1: we do see that trend nationwide it's just been really exciting not only to see it among communities around the country but also even in schools like there's a you know, a whole school garden movement that's doing some amazing work um, around the growing of food and, you know, the kids are much more likely to try the foods once they've grown them, so they're get, they're getting some part of the nutritional education. Sometimes those gardens are even getting foods that they're producing into the school menus. So I think, but I think from a community-building perspective, you know, that, we've known that for years, that it really, um, having green spaces is incredibly important and community spaces where people can gather Um and the food is, becomes a huge part of it. So I think that movement, the urban agriculture movement um, across the country, is just shows a lot of promise for helping a, any community um, start to think about where their food is coming from and how can they um, make, be a little more self-sufficient in their own growing.
0: Yeah, I remember Michael Cheney on the show and he was talking about a kid and he said to the kid, do you like gardening? He said, no, I love gardening. You know, and it's, it's sort of like, I, I think of it as riding a bike. I mean, humans were hunter gatherers for however long. Um, and so to actually, you know, pick a fresh little cherry tomato off the vine and put it in your mouth, that's just, yeah. or a raspberry, that's just pure magic for kids and even some adults. <laughs>
1: I feel like it's kind of this, Having growing your own food can be this very radical act. I mean, as soon as you start to grow your own food and you start to eat from your garden, it's like, I don't need to go to the store to get this. You know, there's just something sort of liberating about it. And and also just in the sharing that happens, you know, among community members that are doing the same thing. I mean, I think that can just, it it just builds a lot of goodwill, I think, in in areas that, um, you know, maybe neighbors just don't have a chance to interact that much anymore.
0: Well, it's Center for a Livable Future, and this feels livable to me. Community gardens feel livable.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think that you know, there's, there is even um, you know, in terms of like climate change we were talking about earlier. You know, there, you know, the whole heat island effect, and having more green spaces in cities that have a lot of concrete, and you know, creating those gardens can just be another big win.
0: Yeah. And so, um, to go back about the uh, White House Conference on Hunger, Health, and Nutrition, this could be held this September. Uh, the D.C., uh, this event can, um, uh, hopes to kind of create a roadmap for the White House and the Congress to address these issues of hunger, nutrition, physical activity, uh, reducing diet-related diseases, and closing, uh, disparity gaps. And so prior to these conferences, there's a series of virtual and listening sessions and people can get involved in all sorts of ways. Why is a conference like this important?
1: When you have a conference like this that brings together so many different perspectives and so many different um, organizations and people, it draws attention to the issue that wouldn't be there otherwise. Um, Food ends up in a lot of different discussion spaces and a lot of different, it's on a lot of different agendas, but if it's on them just as a single issue and not sort of uh, considered as what is it doing to drive um, these larger issues, I think we missed an opportunity to make those, you know, draw those connections and and, um, make the kinds of changes that I think we are going to need when we're looking at all of these different sectors working together. So I think it's exciting in that they are, you know, they decided to do this. I think um, it's probably, you know, it could have been done on a more regular basis. I mean, we saw, you know, some efforts being done when, um, with Michelle Obama and the Let's Move work, uh, but there wasn't a national gathering around this. And I think it's important to, to have that space um, for us to kind of reckon with that
0: as a country, and to do it in a grassroots effort way too. I mean, I know, um, for instance, uh, the uh, World Central Kitchen and other groups—they're—they're—they're they're, they're also being part of, of this, and uh, it's not a, attached to it um, technically, but they're—it's all ways of um, spreading um, the the uh, spreading and and being coordinated with a rational and kind food system. Yeah, exactly. Cool. So um, I want to also connect um, the – just kind of talk about the dominant food system. So the industrial food system, what are the – what are some of the consequences of the industrial food system, how we're eating right now?
1: So I think one of the things we've seen is just sort of the environmental degradation that happens with an industrial food system, Um, the use of pesticides and uh, and chemicals that, you know, don't necessarily – feed the environment or um, help the soil. So I think that is one uh, consequence of it. Another consequence would be just what happens in rural communities when they have large-scale um, animal feeding operations nearby that can affect their water quality and their air quality and their wellness in general. So I think those are, you know, two kind of obvious things that we can point to that we know can cause a problem environmentally and that do, um, you know, and some of these things do create uh, increase. increased Greenhouse gas emissions, and we need to consider what does that look like. You know, what does agriculture look like that is going to um, be for the next uh, be available for us to the next fifty years uh, that will produce foods that we need, but also do it that we're not not so extractive.
0: Yeah, and so I mean, I had a chart that I um, I, I kept. It was from the uh, USDA Center of um, Census of Agriculture from 1978 to 2012, farms with t- five thousand pigs. I mean. Farms that had more than five thousand pigs was really rare in the seventies. I mean, you you didn't you didn't have that. And now, the vast majority, 90 um, percent of farms are these large farms, and that's where most of um, most of the meat comes from. Is huge operations. Is that about accurate?
1: I can't speak to those numbers, um, but I can you know say that yeah. I mean that has certainly been the trend and i think you know what you're seeing and this is probably true across not just against the producers but it's just that it is if profit is your main goal then it's really difficult to talk about the impact all these externalities and these other costs right so it's like we can't just be thinking about who's going to make the most money from this and how are we going to profit because the the costs are being borne unequally and you know that's true of you know food manufacturers as well, right? So the reason, so you know, they don't want to make foods that people aren't going to buy, um, and so they're buying, they're trying to sell us foods that are may are not as healthy because those sell faster and sell cheaper and are easier to convince people they want to eat than um, you know whole grains and uh, produce and things like that. They're just the prof- profit margin isn't there.
0: And um. um- the food system is um, reliant also on, on low-income workers. So, is our food system fragile right now?
1: Um, I think our food system has been fragile for a long time, and I think we've certainly seen the last. Um, it's been tested and broken. broke I guess broken maybe isn't the right word, but tested and um, really struggled the last two years. I think we, you know, I think there isn't anybody who's going to point to what's happened in the last two years and say we were prepared and things went well, you know, this is exactly what, you know, we, we anticipated would happen. So I definitely feel like we have a lot of things to consider when we think about, um, creating a food system that is going to be resilient and equitable, um, and forward thinking beyond the next, you know, five years, 10 years, when you talk about 50 years down the line, I think we have to really consider what does that mean? And I think, you know, some of our goals, uh, have to change and we have to start recognizing that, you know, unlimited growth isn't really an option when we have finite resources.
0: And perhaps having um, more growth of the resources that are infinite and that is our relationships with each other and with the planet yeah. and, and with the animals on the planet and the plants and the microbes.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's a great way of thinking of it actually.
0: Yeah. yeah. And, and I, cause I mean, the name is center for a livable future and, and, um, you know how how do we move towards a livable future, um, and and how to create a value system that can function in this world?
1: Yeah, and I think you know we have to start thinking about what are we leaving for future generations, and um, and even current generations. I mean, I think there's uh, the little I read. You know, there is a mental health crisis in our among our young people these days, and I think that a lot of that probably has to do with this, this idea that. You know, uh, the good times are running out and we've got to figure out what we're going to do and and what can they do to help. And I think we need, you know, part of this conference should be coming out with, you know, a set of actions that people um, at all different levels, at, at community and state levels, can act on and can start to think about what do we do and how do we then pressure our policymakers to make sure that they are proposing policies that are sound and going to help everybody across the board.
0: Yeah I'm glad you brought up um a mental health too because um mental health is connected to physical health I mean it is it is all connected so it's it's integrated and in how do we look at the food system federal policy um and um economic behavior in a holistic integrated way that leads to a livable future.
1: <laughs> so we're yeah.
0: going to take, take a break and we'll be right back. We're talking with um, and with the uh, uh, John Hopkins um, Bloomberg School of Public Health. Um, we're talking about an upcoming White House Conference on hunger, health and nutrition. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio. Feelings so are high Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Headland, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap is not ch- food uh, cheap food is not cheap, and a person uh, wanting a livable future. Um, with us right now is Anne Palmer. She is a faculty me- faculty member with the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She's also with the Center for Livable Future and Food Policy Networks. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. Thanks, Laura. Thanks. Um, let's talk a little bit about COVID nineteen. What did we learn? Um, now, about the food systems and how that disrupted it and and, and um, what were some of the solutions that worked and what was some of the things that you think uh, we could have learned or responded to in a better way?
1: So I think one of the things we learned is that um, our supply chains are pretty vulnerable. And so when we – and, and granted, this was sort of uh, – this may be one of those situations where – there, there were so many things falling down at the same time that it was really hard to kind of anticipate all these different, you know, all the things that are going to need to have happened and how do you activate those kinds of emergency systems. So I think one of the things we learned is we do, you know, when things are not operating uh, as we normally expect them to, that it is very difficult to get people food who need it. And so you have, I mean, where do people get their food right now? Well, when kids go to school, they're getting meals at school. So when the schools are shut down, um, where are are they going to get their food? So we had to think about, you know, how do we get meals to kids who are otherwise probably not going to eat because their families cannot afford to buy, go out and buy the food. And we couldn't even get the food in some cases at the stores, right? There were supply chain issues with that. So we saw a lot of um, school nutrition directors creating uh, spaces like they would make the meals and then the families would come and pick up those meals. So that was, you know, one example of I think that happened that was actually, you know, relatively effective. Um, it got food out to people. It wasn't perfect. You know, they had to have show up in person. They couldn't, you know, I don't. there were some weird rules I think that we heard about later on that maybe were not super effective. But I think that was a great, you know, that it showed that people could pivot. Um, another example was the Farmers to Families food boxes, which was a program that um, USDA put into place because all of these producers had a surplus of food because their supply chains weren't you know, weren't working. And so they had, to, what are you going to do with all the food? And you have all these people who need the food. And so there were um, attempts around the country, and a lot of different jurisdictions did these. Where they were putting together boxes of foods for families that they could pick up, um, and in some cases they were free, in some cases they were paying just a very low cost, and that was using the foods that were available from those areas. And we, you know, there again another the large scale program. Um, I think the first round of that funding went really well, and it did involve a lot of local and regional producers. Um, I heard from in subsequent rounds it was more some of the larger. Scale food procurers, which was not necessarily ideal, and not answering the problems of um, those local producers. But I think that was another one where we were trying to find new markets and new opportunities for producers, uh, so they were not going to be going out of business, and also be getting food to people who needed it.
0: Yeah, and um, so, and I know we want to talk to make these connections about healthcare and food. So you want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So. One of the things we've seen—I mean, it is—it is sort of ironic. You know, we have um, an incredible healthcare system; people come all over the world to get this, but uh, to avail themselves of our healthcare system. But we don't really have um, an emphasis on food and nutrition within that system, and there's very little that gets directed towards prevention. So I think there's some interesting things going on right now in this arena that I think are worth mentioning. So one of them is called a produce uh, prescription program where clinicians will give prescriptions for free or discounted healthy foods that can be redeemed, sometimes at their healthcare settings themselves, other times through grocers um, or farmer's markets or CSA programs. Um, so so you go to the
0: doctor and the doctor says, you, got, you need more fruits and vegetables, so I'm going to write this prescription <laughs> and you take this prescription to your store and you get more fruits and vegetables. Is that basically how that works?
1: That is basically how it works. uh uh-huh. um, I'm sure it's more complicated in practice. I mean, it is not. It's not been an easy program to implement, but I think we're seeing some um, really gr- promising findings. And I think what's great about seeing this at that level is that you know healthcare providers are also tracking biomarkers, and so there's an opportunity to see you know what are the health changes that are happening with individuals who have been um, increasing their consumption of healthier foods. And so- I think those. Those are pretty promising right now.
0: So, you, yeah, so if we eat healthier, um, can we reduce our health care dollars if Americans are theory, eating In theory,
1: yes. I think, you know, that certainly is the goal with some of these. And I think um, there is there is still a power. You know, health care providers have some level of authority and trust. And if they have a good relationship with their patients, they do have an opportunity to be, mentioning and talking about food and nutrition in a way that others outside of you know that individual's life are, are not going to be as effective or not as influential and i think we don't right now you could go through medical school and have very little on nutrition and food um and i think that being able to shift to that and getting more medical schools to train providers on the basics of nutrition and what does it look like to uh, have you know what happens with people when they are exposed to more healthier foods and you know how can you encourage that in your practice how can you make it more affordable can you screen to find out if people are eligible for WIC or for SNAP and help them get signed up for that in your practice so you know just different ways to think about that Um, and then I think the other thing that you know we've been paying a little bit closer attention to is under the Affordable Care Act there are, you know, health um, care providers and hospitals had to use community benefit dollars, and there was a big push for prevention,s for people not to be readmitted within 30 days. And so we saw, you know, hospitals really making an effort to do more uh, in the prevention arena and start to fund things like farmer's markets and CSAs on site um, and, you know, senior nutrition programs. And so I think that um, kind of circular, you know, feedback loop of, you know, we want to have the people in our community healthy, we want to serve our the catchment area of our neighbor, you know, in our neighbors and keep them healthy, we want to keep our employees healthy, and that there's, there's some really interesting things happening there. Um, the Democracy Collaborative out of Washington, D.C. runs this healthcare anchor network um, with about 65 different institutions around the country, and they're sharing practices that are really trying to get at the disparities, and... and building on those, and that a lot of those are food-related, but it is kind of through this economic model. Like, can we buy produce from farmers in our region, and does that then help because we're buying these whole foods, and are they using a distributor and things like that?
0: So, So Ann Palmer, before we go, I want to give you a chance to mention your website, and if people want more information, uh, where to go.
1: So, our website is uh, Center for Livable Future, and it's um, the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. So you can just Google that and find us. And if you want to learn anything more about um, Food Policy Council, you can go to our website, foodpolicynetworks.org.
0: And we'll all be paying attention in September when the White House holds a conference on hunger, health, and nutrition. That's the first time in 50 years, and people can get information about that and even put in their ideas by going to whitehouse.gov. So I thank you so much, Ann Palmer, uh, Director of Practice and a faculty member with the John Hopkins Bloomington uh, Bloomberg School of Public Health and the Center for a Livable Future. So, hey, let's have a livable future with healthy people eating from living soil and clean water and less injustice and just live a better life and leave it for ourselves experience it ourselves and experience it for the next generation. So thank you so much for listening to Food Freedom Radio and thank you,
1: Anne. Thank you, Laura. Oh, I'm